Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, Last Call. All right, well, before we get into chapter 14, I want to quickly review uh, chapter 13. So if you were with us a few weeks ago, you remember that in chapter 13, John had a vision of two beasts that are going to rise to power during the coming tribulation period. The first half of chapter 13 is about the first beast, and the second half of chapter 13 is about the second beast. The first beast is a political leader, and the second beast is a religious leader. The first beast is this politician, and in the end days, he's going to rise to rule over the whole world over something called a revived Roman Empire. The second beast, that religious uh, charlatan, he's going to help that politician rise to that position through a strong deception. And so if you're taking notes, who are the two diabolical directors of the last seven years of history as we know it? The first beast is the Antichrist, that's the politician. The second beast is the false prophet, that's the religious charlatan. Now somebody may say, well how in the world can one guy rise to such a high position that he's actually ruling over the whole world? And the answer is through a strong deception. It says in chapter 13, verse 14, that this coming false prophet, he's going to deceive the world through miracles, signs, and wonders. Of course, he's not going to, and by the way, how many of you guys know that not all miracles, signs, and wonders come from God, right? And so this guy in the tribulation, he's going to do miracles, signs, and wonders through the power of Satan, and through those miraculous signs, he's going to get everybody's attention in the world, and then he's going to point to that politician, that world dictator, the Antichrist, as the savior of the world, as the guy who can save the world from economic collapse, and billions, with a B, are going to take the bait, hook, line, and sinker. And so two diabolical directors what will be their directives? Number one, the world in the last three and a half years will be commanded to worship the beast, worship the politician. And then number two, they're gonna be commanded to receive his mark. And so during the great tribulation, as I've said before, an image, a statue most likely, is going to be erected in the rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. It'll be an image of the Antichrist, and the world will be commanded, just like, by the way, in the first century, if you're in the Roman Empire, you had to take a pinch of salt and stand before Caesar's bust and say, Caesar is Lord. In the same way, the whole world will be compelled to worship this image of the beast. Not only that, they will be commanded to receive his mark either in their right hand or in their forehead. Some people believe that the mark of the beast, and by the way, it'll either be his name or the number of his name, and if you don't have it, you won't be able to buy or sell goods legally during the last three and a half years. But some believe the mark of the beast will be some type of microchip that will be implanted just under the skin in either the right hand or in the forehead. It's interesting, I was reading just three days ago an article in Fox Business News and they were featuring the first um, American business that is now microchipping their employees. It's a um, tech company out of Wisconsin, it's called Three Square Market. And last week, August 1st, they began to chip their uh, employees right under the skin in the hand, and the employees are using that chip to open doors, to buy food in the break room, and not only that, uh, to sign into their computers without passwords, just the wave of a hand. And so it may be, everybody say may, 
because we don't know for sure, but it may be that this microchip technology will continue to grow in popularity and the government of the Antichrist, that revived Roman Empire, will use that microchip technology in order to keep track of, control the inhabitants of the world. By the way, isn't it interesting that no other generation before our generation has ever had the ability for one guy to control the world? But now, all of a sudden, through the advancements of technology, now we know that the technology is here. It could happen at any time. Isn't it sad in chapter 13 how the world will continue to get worse and worse and worse? Ladies and gentlemen, I am a realist and I am a biblicist. That means I take a realistic view of life and that means I believe that this is actually God's word. And if you're a realist, And if you're a biblicist, that means that you know that things are not going to get better and better and better. They are going to get worse and worse and worse. There are pastors in pulpits today, post-millennialists, who believe that the American church is going to bring in the kingdom of God. We're going to reach the world. And then Jesus is going to come back. Nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is things will get worse and worse to the point where people will be taking the, the mark of the beast in the right hand or their forehead to buy and sell goods, they'll be bowing down to a statue of a politician just like they did in the first century. Things are not getting better and better. I would love to be able to stand before you and smile really big and say, hey, everything's gonna get better and better and, and preach some kind of 20-minute success message to make you feel real good. But I know as a pastor, I'm called to teach this book. And so I'll teach it verse by verse and the positive verses I'll teach and the negative verses that don't make us feel good, like the ones we're gonna read in a little while, I'll, I'll preach those too. The good news is the opening verses of chapter 14 13, bad news, now chapter 14, really, really good news because the Lord is gonna give John a vision of what will take place after the Antichrist and after the false prophet are defeated. He's gonna give John a glimpse of the coming millennial period. Now, real quick, before we read uh, verse one, just know that not all of Revelation is in chronological order. By the way, that's true of all Bible prophecy, Old and New Testament. Whether you're talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel in the Old Testament, or Revelation in the New Testament, sometimes the visions are given in um, an order that's not chronological. And so in chapter 14, verses um, 1 through 5, you're going to see we're going to jump ahead to after the second coming of Christ to the very beginning of the millennial period. By the way, millennial reign of Christ, one of my favorite subjects in all the world. And so look at verse one. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And so after Jesus returns to the earth, After Jesus defeats his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon, after Jesus watches as the Antichrist and false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, all of that will cover in chapter 19. After all those things, Jesus will stand victoriously on Mount Zion and he will commence his 1,000-year reign as the son of David. So if you're taking notes, after Christ returns, he will stand victoriously on Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? It's another name for Jerusalem. And so once again, chapter 13, evil covers the face of the world. Chapter 13, but now in chapter 14, righteousness will cover the face of the world and that righteousness begins on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the name that was used to describe ancient Jerusalem, specifically the hills that ancient Jerusalem was built on, and it will be to Mount Zion that Jesus will one day come and one day stand. Mount Zion in chapter 14 is not talking about heaven. 
It's talking about literal Jerusalem and the hills that Jerusalem is built on because Jesus is not coming back you know, uh, allegorically. He's coming back literally to this earth and he will literally stand on literal Mount Zion in literal Jerusalem. And so, Psalm chapter two, verse six. You may wanna write that down somewhere. I was gonna read all of Psalm two, but I don't have time. But in Psalm chapter two, verse six, here's the prophecy that was made through David a thousand years before Jesus was born. Psalm chapter two, verse six, the father says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is filled with prophecies that that the son of David will come to this earth and literally reign as Israel's Messiah, as the Messiah of the world, the Savior of the world. And so we see a glimpse of that through John and his vision in chapter 14. Now, who's gonna be standing with the Lord? Look again at verse one. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, there they are again, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And so after Christ returns, he will stand victoriously on Mount Zion with the 144,000. Do you guys remember um, the 144,000 from chapter seven? If you were here when we talked through that, let me see your hand. Okay, so you remember them? Uh, Chapter seven, they began their ministry, and now in chapter 14, through John's vision of the millennium, they have now ended their ministry. He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ, and that promise goes for the 144,000 as well. And so, quick recap. In the beginning days of the tribulation period, God will save and he will seal 144,000 Jewish men, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel. And somebody says, well, we don't even know um, who, who who the people are, the descendants of the various tribes of Israel. True, we don't know, God knows. And so he will handpick 144,000 Jewish men and they will be commissioned to go across the world during the last seven years of history as we know it, and they will evangelize the world during the tribulation period. That's what I call grace. That's what I call a a God of, of second chances, and third, and fourth, and fifth chances as well. How many of you guys are glad about that in your own life, right? That God's a God of second, and third, and fourth chances? And so here you have these guys, as I've said before, 144,000 Apostle Pauls, and they're sharing the gospel throughout the earth, even during the tribulation period. God is gonna save them, he's gonna seal them, and then he's going to protect them from the government of the Antichrist. The fruit of their ministry will be astronomical. They're gonna lead So many people, the Bible says in Revelation 7, 9, you can't even count them. People from every uh, nation and tribe and people and tongue. And so thank God that God still gets the gospel out during the darkest part of Earth's history. Now, think about what these guys go through. They're gonna be there in the tribulation period And what's coming down from heaven on the earth? The wrath of God. And so here they are. They're enduring, experiencing the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, um, cataclysmic events, natural upheavals of, of, of nature, volcanoes and earthquakes, right? All the stuff that we've studied before in Revelation chapter six and, and more. Uh, they're, they're there, they're experiencing that, they're experiencing persecution from the government as the revived Roman Empire is trying to hunt them down and kill them, and yet, here's what you need to know, all 144,000 of these men will make it to the very end of the tribulation period, and they will see Jesus literally coming back to earth. These guys are heroes, 
And I love what John MacArthur has to say about these guys. He says that these men are the most triumphant group of men the world would ever, will ever know. They will emerge from the worst holocaust in history, the tribulation, battle-weary but triumphant. The 144,000 will survive both Satan's wrath and God's judgments on the sinful world. Nothing will be able to harm them because God will seal them. These guys are heroes. Maybe some of your kids, when they write papers this school year on who's their hero, should write about the 144,000. Let's see what the public school teachers do with that. <laughs> These guys are amazing men of God. And so, where are they gonna go after Jesus comes back? They're walking up Mount Zion. And they have a special place standing on Mount Zion victoriously with the Lamb of God, the Son of David, Jesus Christ. And so, I want you to think through this real quick. These men are entering now the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ, Revelation chapter 20. And as they go in, they're not going in with glorified bodies like we're gonna receive at the rapture of the church. No, they're going into the millennial reign of Christ in human flesh and bone bodies. There's lots of different judgments in the Bible. One of the judgments is found in Matthew chapter 25. It's called the judgment of the nations. And at that time, Jesus says, you say, how, how, Pastor Mike, how do you know all this stuff's gonna come true? Because, listen, Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, he's gonna separate all the people who survived the tribulation period into two groups, the sheep and the goats, the redeemed and the unredeemed, the saved and the unsaved, the forgiven and the unforgiven. The reason I turn around is because I don't wanna ever say the sheep and call everybody here goats. Okay, so that's why I turned around. He's gonna do that. So now you have the sheep, and they survived the tribulation period. They're saved, they're redeemed by the blood of the lamb. The 144,000 are part of them. And Jesus says, enter in. And they enter in in their human bodies. Now, paradise regained. The second Adam will regain what the first Adam lost. The millennial period, the earth will be returned to kind of a Garden of Eden state. And people in human bodies, I mean, babies will be living, it says somewhere in the Old Testament prophecy, to 100 years old. People, I mean, how long did Adam live, right? And so people are living for a very long time. They're getting married, they're having babies, they're repopulating the earth during the millennial reign. We're there, but we're in our glorified bodies. Our home is the New Jerusalem, now here's my theory, this is what I love about third service, is because I don't have to fight the clock. I can just talk to you guys. And some of you guys are thinking, yeah, but I gotta go to lunch, okay. So I'll make this quick, all right? So when we received our glorified bodies at the rapture, the next prophetic event on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. No one knows the day or the hour is gonna happen. When that happens, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trump, um, we're gonna be caught up and we're gonna see him as he is. We're gonna receive brand new, glorified, eternal, immortal bodies. And so that's all biblical. Here's my theory. My theory is because we're gonna be reigning over five cities, 10 cities, right? Remember that passage? Parable of the talents. We're gonna be helping Jesus reign over cities in the millennial kingdom. Our home is New Jerusalem. My theory is that New Jerusalem is about the size of the moon when you take the, 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 the dimensions. Um, and I think the New Jerusalem, because it's one day gonna come from heaven to earth, that it's gonna be up there and it's gonna be orbiting the earth for a thousand years and us in our eternal resurrected immortal bodies will be going back and forth to our home to help administrate the government of the king on the earth. Hey, there's more to life than this life. And so it's gonna be exciting. The question is, do you know Jesus? Have your sins been forgiven by the blood of the lamb? Will you be there at that time? And so now back to my notes. 
Um, when the 144,000 stand with Christ on Mount Zion, a new song is gonna break out from heaven. Look at verse two. It says, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing, what kind of a song? A new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Okay, so now in your Bibles, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. From Mount Zion in Jerusalem to the Father's throne up in heaven. And what happens is right now, a party breaks out at the throne of God. After Jesus comes back to the earth, heaven is gonna be so happy that they're gonna begin to party in God's presence. And they're gonna begin to sing a new song. And the new song is gonna be just for the 144,000. You say, why? Here's what I believe. I think the reason why they get a special song is because they went through hell on earth. They suffered on earth. God's judgments were coming down. Satan's persecution was coming across. The Antichrist government was hunting them down. They had heartbreak and misery and loss, and yet they survived all the way through to the end of the tribulation period. And after all of that suffering, now they're serenaded by heaven, a new song just for them. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. Maybe you had a difficult life. Maybe a lot of heartbreak, sorrow, and pain. What you need to know is that when this vapor of a life is over and you're in the presence of the Lord, there's a, a song waiting for you. And that song, when you hear it, and when you're in the presence of God in your new glorified body, listen, the things of earth, everything that happened, all the heartache, all the pain will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so if you're going through a difficult time, I'm so sorry that you're going through that difficult time, but here's my encouragement. No matter what happens, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I don't know how people who are unredeemed, unregenerate, lost. I don't know how they get through the pain of life without the presence of the Lord. Never forsake the presence of the Lord. And so, look at verse four. It is these, the 144,000, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. So they're actually lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. And so what can we extract from verses four through verse five? If you're taking notes, the 144,000 will be saved virtuous, faithful, and ethical. It says in verse four that they will be redeemed. Redeemed by the, the blood of the lamb. That's the only, the only way we can be redeemed, literally purchased, is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so in the opening days of the tribulation period, these guys will hear that Jesus was Israel's Messiah all along. Right now, that nation of Israel over there, they return to their land in unbelief. There's a handful of Messianic Jews, but the vast majority of them are either secular or they're religious Jews that reject Jesus. Well, these guys, whenever the tribulation happens, they're gonna hear that Jesus was, was Israel's Messiah all along, and they're gonna turn to Jesus with all their hearts, and they will be redeemed by faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, what will happen after this authentic conversion, well, every authentic conversion gives fruit, right? Faith without works is what? Dead. And so the 
evidence, the fruit of being saved is they will be virtuous, faithful, and ethical. First of all, let's tackle virtuous. It says in verse four, these guys have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. Now, it may be that literally these guys will be virgins, they'll be single, um, but the text doesn't necessarily, um, 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 uh, it doesn't have to be that they're literal virgins because Israel in the Old Testament was called a virgin and we all know that Israel sometimes backslid. Okay, and so these guys may be married, but here's what I know for a fact. They will be true if they're married to their marital vows. And so it's kind of sad, but some Christians, when you study church history, some Christians believe that all sexual activity was bad or negative or dirty. We, we, we see this as we study church history, but the truth is Hebrews chapter 13 verse four says this. It says, quote, marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And so, newsflash, God created sex. It's not dirty. Isn't he a great inventor, by the way? And so as long as sex is enjoyed exclusively within the boundaries of marriage, it is not something that defiles us, it's something that blesses us. But the rest of Hebrews 13, four says, fornicators, that's sex before marriage, and adulterers, that's sex after marriage with somebody you're not married to, God will judge. And so I wanna be crystal, crystal clear um, with you guys this afternoon. And that is, if you're here today and you're currently defiling yourself either by having sex before marriage or you're married and you're running around on your spouse, either physically with another man or woman or virtually through pornography, you need to know that if you do not repent, God's gonna judge you. Hebrews 13, four, clear as day. Now, does anybody think God wants to judge them? The answer is no. He's a good, good father. He loves you. But here's the thing, I've said this before, if, if, if you have a toddler and they go up to the stove and the burner's on high and they're reaching up, what are you gonna do, mom and dad? Shoot, bam, bam. Why? Because that, even though that kind of hurt, um, but, but that hurts a lot less than them burning their hands off. God knows that sex outside of marriage will burn you. It may be pleasurable for a season, but in the end, it's as bitter as wormwood. It's gonna destroy you, it's gonna destroy lives and other people, it, it's, it's gonna destroy those who are closest around you. And so, I wanna encourage you to turn from that. You say, Pastor, this is a church. No one in here is having sex outside of marriage. If you believe that, I have some, land, some, some oceanfront property to sell you in Nevada, okay? So of course there's people in a crowd this size who are doing that. And so please hear very clearly, you got to stop. Admit it and quit it. Now if a pastor loves you, they're, they're willing to warn you at the risk of offending you. But if a pastor doesn't love you, he'll tiptoe around the Bible and he'll never preach verses like this. Does that make sense? And so do that, do that. These guys are saved, they're guys, these guys are virtuous, and not only that, they're faithful. It says in, in uh, verse four also that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. What does that mean? That means that their conversion is authentic. How do you know a conversion is authentic? One of the ways you know a conversion is authentic is that person becomes a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old, is, uh, the old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You know what's, what's scary to me as a pastor? Is that almost every week I lead people in what's called the sinner's prayer. And so people will repeat after me. And but 
here's the thing. If they're just saying words, if they're just repeating a poem, then they're just as lost as they were before they said the prayer. No, true conversion, repentance, is a metanoia. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. That means that you're going this way, and then all of a sudden you're confronted with the gospel of grace, that salvation is by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And all of a sudden, you say, man, I need that. Jesus is my only hope. His blood is the only thing that can forgive my sins. It has nothing to do with what I do, everything what he did on the cross. And I need, best way I know how, turn from my sins and turn to Jesus as my only hope. And then receive Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. Then what happens, that's not a poem you recite. That's an authentic conversion. And that salvation gives fruit of a virtuous, faithful, and ethical life. Does this make sense to you guys? And so they're not only virtuous, they're not only faithful, but they're also ethical because it says in verse five that in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. They're not perfect because nobody's perfect, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They're not perfect, but they're men of integrity. And so before I move on, let me just say, address the singles here this afternoon. If you're single and you're dating somebody right now, before you go on another date, don't look primarily on how that person looks on the outside. Look primarily on who that person is on the inside. Ask yourself, is this person I'm dating, number one, saved? Well, they go to church. My car goes to church every week and my car is not saved. And by the way, they may be just going to church to, to reel you in. And once you, you say, I do, you'll never see them here again. Just be careful. Are they saved? Are they virtuous? That means they're not looking at pornography. They're not, you know, doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Number three, are they faithful to Christ? They're actually following Jesus. And number four, are they ethical? Are they a man or woman of integrity? Listen, those qualities are the qualities that make for a great marriage 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road. But the absence of those qualities bring hurt and pain and heartache into any relationship. And so that was free. You didn't have to pay for that one. All right, (laughs) let's go on. The next six verses in verses six through 11 We're now hitting the rewind button. We're in the millennium. Now we're going backwards into the great tribulation. And now we're gonna see three messages from three angels. During the tribulation period, what's gonna happen is that angels are gonna fly across the sky and they're gonna give three messages to the world right before Jesus comes back. What are the three messages? If you're taking notes, Angel number one proclaims the eternal gospel. Angel number two says Babylon has fallen. And angel number three gives a warning of judgment. And so let's dissect these verses starting in verse six. John says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So this angel is busy flying around. And he said in verse 11 with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. And so this first angel proclaims an eternal gospel to the whole world before the Lord comes back. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, and I quote, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, some churches have taken Matthew 24, 14, out of its context, 
and they have taught that the church needs to preach the gospel to every single person in the world before Jesus can come back. That Jesus is up there in heaven and he's waiting for the church to do their job so he can come back. That is a wrong interpretation of Matthew 24, 14. We don't take verses out of their context. We leave them in the context. We look at the verses before and after, and then we rightly divide the word of truth. What is Jesus talking about in Matthew 24? He's talking about the tribulation period. He's talking about wars and rumors of wars, pestilence. He's talking about earthquakes and false prophets, famine, and the abomination of desolation. It's all right there in Matthew 24. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the things that we've just studied in Revelation 6 through 13. And so once again, Matthew 24, 14, this, this is Jesus, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about this angel. This angel flying around the earth proclaiming the eternal gospel. Can you guys believe that a literal angel is gonna be seen during the last three and a half years and he's gonna be preaching the gospel to people? Isn't that unusual? Has anybody ever seen an angel evangelize? But see, desperate times call for desperate measures. And so this angel is another evidence that God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. People look at the tribulation period and the the wrath of God coming down. They're like, God's so mean. I don't want anything to do with a God like that. No, God is so gracious. He sends 144,000 Jewish evangelists, two witnesses and an angel to proclaim the gospel right before he comes back. Isn't God good? He's so good. What's the message of the second angel? Look at verse eight. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And so I'm not going to talk a lot about verse 8 right now because verse 8 is explained in chapters 17 and 18, the fall of Babylon. And so everybody look at me real quick. When we talk about Babylon, I'm doing that because Babylon, I believe, is a metaphor for the religious, political, and economic system of the last days. And so when you look at that, just like there was an organized effort to rebel against God in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, ancient Babel, so there will be an organized effort by man to rebel against God religiously, politically, economically during the tribulation period. And so we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 17, but now we're gonna read verses nine through 11. We're gonna look at the last angel's message. And ladies and gentlemen, put your seatbelts on. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. That means they're alive in hell. They have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. The first angel proclaims the eternal gospel The second angel says Babylon has fallen and now the third angel warns of judgment. Judgment in the afterlife. And there's so many different views about the afterlife in the world. The secular humanist says, hey, when you die, you're annihilated. Lights out, you cease to exist, done. The Buddhists, some Buddhists and the the Hindus say, when you die, 
based on how you live, you're coming back. You're coming back as a, a plant, an animal, a bug, a person. Many Roman Catholics say when you die, you don't go straight to heaven. No, you got to go through a painful time of being purged in a place called purgatory. Ladies and gentlemen, all of those views are not based on the word of God. It does not matter what we think. It does not matter how we feel. All that matters is what this book says. And the book says when you die, you're gonna wake up in one of two places, heaven or hell. And so I wanna say it as clear as I can say it. Because James says this life's a vapor. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. And the rich man in Luke 16, he died. And Jesus, who preached more on hell than on heaven, said he lifted up his eyes and he was in hell, tormented in a flame. That's Jesus. Whatever Jesus says comes true. And so again, I'm not gonna come here every Sunday and let you know how you can be a success in the little 70 to 100 years you have on this earth. I am going to warn you of coming judgment and, and let you know there's a fire escape. His name is Jesus. Run to him. Let him embrace you. Let him forgive you. Let his Holy Spirit come inside and, and give you the joy and the peace that you need. That's the true gospel. And God loves everybody in the world so much, he sends an angel to say what I'm saying during the, the great tribulation period. Judgment's coming. Hell is coming. The church has ceased to exist to, talk, to believe in hell. Why has the church stopped believing in hell? Because it turns people off, pastor. People get up and walk out of the church. Who cares? There's a literal hell. And my concern is that in our church of 17, 18, 1900 people, how many people said a little poem after a pastor, but their life never changed and they're gonna die and they're gonna wake up in hell. And my heart breaks. I never forget having, having lunch with, with Chuck Smith and other pastors. And I, I said, Pastor Chuck, he's the founder of Calvary Chapel, what's your greatest fear? He said, my greatest fear is there's people in my own church are gonna go to hell. There's never been a true conversion. Ladies and gentlemen, a true conversion means this. You're going this way, but when you meet Jesus, you don't keep going that way. You turn around and you live for him. You don't just go to church once a week. You don't just read your Bible once a week. You don't live your whole life and never share your faith. You don't continue to have sexual relationships outside of marriage. You don't continue to look at pornography after your wife goes to bed. No, a true, born-again, spirit-filled person is a new creation. He or she has new desires. They have a new direction. My question is, are you really saved? Do you really know the Lord? Has he changed your life? Please don't leave here unless you know that you know that Jesus Christ lives in me. It's not just some little prayer I said. And so man, here's the good news. The good news is no one has to drink of the cup in verse 10. No one has to drink that cup of God's wrath poured full strength in the cup of his anger. Here's why, Jesus already drank the cup. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's on his knees and he's sweating great drops of blood. Look at what he said to the Father. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. What cup is he talking about? The cup of God's divine wrath against our sins. Jesus knew if he went to the cross, he's got to take your sin, my sin, the sin of the whole world from Adam to the last person into his body and he's gotta drink the cup of God's wrath against mankind's sin. He didn't wanna do that. He's sweating blood. But how many of you are thankful that he says, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done? Amen. Listen, if there was any other way to the Father except through Jesus, do you think the Father would have sent his own son to a cross? If you could be saved by trying hard or following some other religion, 
do you really think God would have sent his son to a cross? Jesus, he said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so if you're here today, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna call you to repentance and faith publicly. There's no tricks, there's no gimmicks. I'm gonna ask you, will you identify with Jesus Christ? And so if you're here today and you want Jesus Christ, wherever you are, who cares what anybody thinks? I want you to stand up and remain standing and we're gonna authentically go to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Whoever you are, just stand to your feet, whoever you are. And I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait here for a minute. Yep, God bless you, God bless you, awesome. Stand and remain standing. God bless you. Anybody else, God bless you. God bless you in the back. God bless you, awesome. Anybody else? I need Jesus Christ, I need his presence, I need his forgiveness, I need his love, I need his joy. I wanna live with him forever. Just stand to your, your feet, whoever you are. And church family, let's really encourage these people because this took a lot of courage for them to do this. Just stand to your feet. God bless you, awesome man, awesome. That's a good job. God bless you, awesome. Yep. Yep. Good job, man. Good job, awesome. Awesome. This is why we invite our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, if they're willing to come, because they have an opportunity to come to Jesus. Anyone else, just stand to your feet. This is the last call, and we have to stop, but just stand to your feet and we'll pray. Awesome, God bless you, man. Awesome. Awesome. Now, all of you who stood, you guys can be seated. God saw your public stand for him. I think that's important. Is it necessary for salvation? No. Salvation's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But I think it's important to stand publicly. And the reason why is because Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. And so right now, Jesus is confessing your names, everyone who stood up, in his Father's ear. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer, not a poem. It always makes me a little nervous when I say repeat after me because I want this so much to be you going to the Father through Jesus. But I will lead you in a prayer. But first, I wanna make sure everybody is crystal, crystal clear. I was talking to a young man who came forward after the first service and I said, okay, if you died and you stood before the Lord and he said, why should I let you in? What would you say? He goes, man, I'm trying, I'm really trying hard. I'm gonna be baptized this Saturday. And I said, you know, I love you, but that's not the right answer. So everyone who stood up, I want you to hear me crystal clear. This is not the gospel of try harder, okay? You can try really hard in your strength and you will fall, I will fall flat on our faces every time. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has already done, okay? So get that clearly, get that clearly. So you say, what am I doing now? Here's what you're gonna do. You heard it, you're turning, best way you know how, from your sins, your past life, you're saying, Jesus, you're my only hope, your blood is the only thing that can forgive my sins, I believe you rose from the dead, come save me, that's it. You're calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. And at the end of the prayer, we're gonna add, uh, Holy Spirit, come into my life, empower me to live for you. I think the, one of the greatest things Jesus ever did is ascend to the right hand of the Father. You know why? Because when he went up, the Holy Spirit came down. And now we all have access to God through the Holy Spirit. He'll be your best friend. He'll live in your heart, he'll move in your heart, he'll give you joy, peace. He'll let you, let you experience what it means to be God's best friend. And so those of you who stood, and maybe if you didn't stand, if you really wanna come to Christ, from your heart to his, say this in your heart, 
to him, Jesus, I believe that you died for me. I've blown it, I've sinned, and I deserve judgment. But thank you that you took the judgment in my place. I believe you rose again. So right here and now, I call on you, Lord. Forgive me, cleanse me with your blood. Be my boss and send your spirit even now inside of me. Make my body the temple of the Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on I'm New Here, then Knowing Christ.